So we have finished uh, the section on the Lord's Prayer, and now we're going to move on uh, to the Ten Commandments. I do want to say a little bit about uh, the introduction. Um, uh, part four is entitled Behaving Christianly, which is sort of an odd, an odd phrase when you think about it. Um, we don't like to talk much about behavior in church anymore. That's not really something that people do anymore. We don't talk about Christian behavior. Uh, we don't talk about anything like that because it sounds like something you do with a dog, right? And we, we're not dogs and we know that. Um, but I think, I think there's something been lost um, in, uh, in a lack of instruction about how Christians are to live. Now, a lot of that is a very good concern, right? The good concern is, hey, we don't want to just teach people how to behave. We want to teach people a way of believing and praying and worshiping, a way of discipleship. Um, and if we do it at all, teach people how to live at the end of that. Um, so I see all that, right? And it makes sense. Um, but I think part of the issue is that all of that, a lot of that just gets lost. Um, there's also a desire, I think, as well, to stay away from forms of legalism. Which is, which is a way of saying, we don't want it to be that uh, people get this idea of just do all the right things, uh, and if you do all the right things, then you'll be in and you'll be good and you get to go to heaven when you die, and isn't that wonderful? And that's, uh, let me just say it quickly, that's not the gospel, okay? <laughs> and so we've got to get uh, to the basics, and the basics are, um, again, we, we, we spelled them out in the catechism. It's the, the Apostles' Creed. We teach the Lord's Prayer. We teach people how to pray. And then, on top of that, teach the Ten Commandments as a very basic format for teaching uh, Christian behavior. Um, so let me just go through this first, first uh, paragraph here on page 103 in part four. In Jesus Christ, God calls us to respond to him in three basic ways. By grasping God's revealed truth about Jesus with our minds by prayerful communion with God in and through Jesus and by doing God's will. Oh, see there, there you get down to the meat of it, yes? It's to grasp God's revealed truth about Jesus, which is contained in the creeds, um, by prayerful communion with God in and through Jesus, love the use of prepositions here, and by doing God's will. Um, what the Catechism lays forth is that being a doer of God's will is important. It's not something that's just an accessory to, um, to the real deal of, Christian, of the Christian life. And I think often, and, and this is part of, the, part, of the, uh, part of the baggage of the Reformation, is that so many people will just say, yeah, but you know, good works are great, but they're really just an accessory to the real thing and to the, and to the really important thing, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I think what, what Anglicans prefer to say is that, um, is that no, they, they very much go together um, in, in one life, um, a life of believing and praying and, and doing God's will, and that's what this says. God's will is primarily revealed to us in Jesus' word and example, which are inextricably linked to the Ten Commandments and other moral instructions found in Scripture. And so the, the church fathers, for instance, in their understanding of how you teach someone what it is to be a Christian, absolutely held that teaching the Ten Commandments in some format was, was essential to this teaching. Um, Augustine's one of them. Uh, you, you've got to, especially when you're uh, encountering um, pagans, right? Because what, what's a pagan idea of, of uh, I should put it this way, oh, a pagan idea of idolatry. 
What did, what did, what did pagans in the Roman era think about idolatry? Like, it's great. You should go do more of that. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, get as many idols as you can. This is, this is how it works. Uh, you know, otherwise, you should be very worried about your business failing because you didn't have the right idols in your house. I mean, and that's literally the case. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind that, that uh, teaching the Ten Commandments is a way of, um, of bringing people into serious discipleship. Catechetical instruction deals with the first aspect through teaching and learning the Apostles' Creed, of course. It deals with the second through teaching and learning the Lord's Prayer. It deals with the third by centering on the Ten Commandments, which are the heart of the law of God that Jesus embodied in his own life and are summarized for us in the command to love God and our neighbor. That's where we really get down to it. Um, for Christians, the great commandment, right, is not an overturning of the law. What is it? It's the fulfillment of the law. Um, to love God and to love your neighbor is not to say, well, I don't need any of those laws. Those things don't help me out at all. What is it? It's to say, I fulfill those by loving God and loving my neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Right? I love that. And we, we started saying depend for some reason, but hang is better, I think. Um, hang means if, if it's not hanging by that thread, it's going to fall to the ground and be destroyed. Um, and this is what the Pharisees lost, yes? It was a way of moral commandment keeping without love. Um, which, of course, falls apart very quickly. Um, okay, well, I'm going to skip over the rest of that. You can read it in your own time, but we'll go straight to the first command, to the first uh, question here, question 256. Why did God give the Ten Commandments? God's holy law is a light to show me his character, a mirror to show me myself, a tutor to lead me to Christ, and a guide to help me love God and others as I should. Um, by the way, if you're, if you're tracking with the theological developments, this is, this is basically classic kind of uh, reformed understanding of the law. It's to show me um, God's character. Um, the whole law shows God's character. A mirror to show me myself, which is often not fun, is it? But the last there it is. A tutor to lead me to Christ. In fact, Paul uses this language in Galatians, right? The law is a kind of, a kind of um, schoolmaster. What does a schoolmaster do? Well, in, in the classical tradition, a schoolmaster is not, is not sort of a dispenser of knowledge, is he? A schoolmaster is, is instead a guide on the way to knowledge. Um, so, so the law is seen, and, and Paul, I think, uses this language intentionally, of a guide to lead me to Christ. Um, and a guide to help me love God and others as I should. Um, you know by now that one of the things I talk a lot about in catechesis is the, the disordering of our affections, right? We have this constant problem with disordered affections. Um, I love things too much, right? Or I love things too little. Um, I love things in the wrong way at the wrong time, um, and so my, my, my affections are all over the place. And I need, I need a guide uh, to show me um, how to love God and love others as I should. When did God give the Ten Commandments? After saving his people Israel from slavery in Egypt through the Ten Plagues, the Passover sacrifice, and crossing of the Red Sea, God gave them as Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai as covenant obligations. All right. So let's break this down a little bit. 
you remember, you've, you've seen the movie at least if you haven't read the, the account in Exodus of the people leaving Egypt, and by the movie I mean Prince of Egypt, obviously. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the people leave Egypt, right? Pharaoh and his army have drowned in the Red Sea. It's this incredibly dramatic event, and then the movie's over. Um, but what happens next is really quite interesting, and we've been reading about it at the Daily Office uh, lately. The people wind up in the desert, and, uh, and of course, what happens? Are they shining moral examples there in the desert? No, they're basically Egyptian pagans, right? They do what Egyptians do. They eat like Egyptians eat. They, they, they're, they're a mess. And in chapter 19 of, of Exodus, um, God calls Moses up on the mountain. Um, and there's, what's, what's surrounding the mountain? <laughs> Smoke, fire, <laughs> it's, it's very dramatic. Um, and there, audibly, this is the thing that happens in chapter 20, audibly, the people down in the valley hear the commandments. And after they hear the commandments, what do they do? This is what separates the Ten Commandments from the rest. The Ten Commandments are written on tablets later, yes, but here they're heard by the people. It's in the hearing of the people that the commandments are given. And then the people say, Moses, beg God not to speak to us anymore because we'll die. <laughs> it's, it's so uh, awesome. Um, and he gives them these uh, as what, what are called here covenant obligations. Um, now, people can spend their whole lives studying what covenant is like in the Old Testament uh, and, and even in the New and not quite understand it very well. It's, it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not a simple thing. But what's essentially there is that uh, there's an exchange which goes on um, where, uh, in a sense, um, I am in the person that I make a covenant with and he is in me and we become one. Um, but in that covenant, we make obligations to each other. Um, I say, uh, I'll, no long, I'll no longer hunt your, uh, your, your sheep on the hills, uh, but you gotta do something for me. Um, so there's this covenant going on. This is, this is a constant thing. Or, you know, your son, since you've got so many of them, can marry my daughter, since I have so many of them, right? And by this, we enter into this covenant. Um, so there are obligations according to covenant. And, and um, this is understood by the people because here's what happens. After all this, there's a big consecration of the people in the blood of, of oxen. Um, and they, uh, they're covered in the blood and they, they basically say, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And they, and they make it a solemn covenant through blood. Okay, are we good so far? All right, so that's what, that's what happens in the Ten Commandments. Of course, how does that go? Well, not very well, right? And there's this constant understanding in the Old Testament, hey, all of this is really good, the law is good, the law is perfect, the law is fantastic. Uh, it, what the problem is we're not any good at it. We can't do it. Um, we can't keep it. More about that later. How did God give the Ten Commandments? God gave them to Moses audibly and awesomely from the midst of the cloud, thus revealing his holiness and afterward writing them on stone tablets. Um, writing them with his own hand. Now, where are the tablets kept? 
you know me, I'm an Ark fan, so here it is. They're kept in the Ark of the Covenant. This box, gilded on all sides, carried on two wooden poles with, you know, gilded angels on top of it. And the top of that box is actually, it has a name, it's called the Mercy Seat. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest is supposed to go in to the Ark, sprinkle blood on the Mercy Seat, because in, you know, inside are the commandments that the people have broken. Um, he's to go into the very presence of God um, and, and, and make atonement for the people. Um, the law is as much to show us, um, to show us our brokenness as it is to show us the ideal. So I want you to catch that. For all too many people, the, the Ten Commandments have become sort of like a moral handbook. And that's, you know, that's not, not a bad way to see it, but it's only one side of it. What's the other side? To help you to repent, right? That's a really incredible, a really incredible gift. Okay. How should you understand the commandments? There are four guiding principles. Though stated negatively, each commandment calls for positive action, forbid whatever hinders its keeping, calls for loving, God-glorifying obedience, and requires that I urge others to be governed by it. Okay, we're going to break it down just a bit. Each commandment calls for positive action. Okay, now, you know that each commandment starts with, thou shalt what? Not, <laughs> except for one important thing, which is observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, which is you shall, you absolutely shall. So some of the commandments, are, most of the commandments are stated negatively, but it, it entails positive action, right? We know this. Thou shalt do no murder translates to what? What's that? Yeah, that, that it's kind of a, a general principle, right? I should, I should cause the life of my neighbor to flourish, right? Um, I should uh, preserve my, my neighbor from danger. Um, if I see my neighbor in trouble that's, that's, that's threatening his life, what do I do? I care for him, right? Make sure he gets to a doctor. Um, it forbids whatever hinders its keeping. So this is important too, is that um, there are lots of things, and, and this is the expansion upon the law that comes later, which is that there are lots of things which say, you know, essentially like this, if, if you do it this way, it's gonna be really difficult for you to keep this law. So consider doing all these other things as well. Um, and, and I would say uh, that, that we all do this, and this is not a, it's not a bad thing, but um, we, we, uh, we often, will, well, let me, let me put it this way. Um, I've often talked to people who say, you know, I have a really hard time gossiping. It's really a horrible gossip. I say, well, so when do you gossip? It's like, when I go to coffee with Joanne. It's like, okay. So don't go to coffee with Joanne anymore. <laughs> like, well, but we've been doing this weekly for years. Well, tell her, tell her this. If we continue to gossip, I can't come to coffee with you anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and they're like, really, that serious? Yes, very much so. <laughs> um, because there, there, there are things which make obedience very difficult, right? It's far more difficult to be obedient when we're in places where, where, it's, where, where temptation surrounds us. Um, also calls for, for loving, God-glorifying obedience. Um, you know, God's interest in the commandments is to have a people of his own who are holy as he is holy. Um, who are set apart for good works. Um, now, of course, this doesn't work out very well, does it? 
not with the people of Israel, for sure. Um, but here's what happens, and I'm going to give you a bit of a preview. What we speak about, what we speak about in the Gospels um, is God has poured out his own blood on us, his people, uh, to make us a people who are his own. Um, and this is not only an atoning sacrifice, but it is one which, which outpours grace to perfect our natures. Um, so, but more about that later. And requires that I urge others to be governed by it. Oh, this is your big gulp moment, right? It's uh, a friend of mine who is a scholar of Leviticus, a really wonderful, really wonderful man, uh, said, you know, this is at the heart of Leviticus, um, is to urge others to be governed by the law. It's to, and, and it's as unpopular as it is, this is, this is the, uh, this is the status of Israel as a nation. It's key to understanding it. Um, and and I'm, I'm heading to Israel in, in, uh, in, a, in a month. And, and his words were impactful to me because if you really want to understand the status of Israel as a nation, um, and of course you can, you can go all around about whether or not that's actually Israel or not, but, but keep in mind, the, one of the central ideas in, the, in, the in, in self-understanding within Judaism is this. It's that our job as a nation uh, is to be a moral corrective to the world. Um, when, when everything goes, goes completely haywire, it's our job to remain steadfast. Um, and in a sense, keep the world from flying off its axis. Um, if you don't understand that about, about the Jewish people, you'll never get it. You'll never understand it. Um, of course, this, this goes straight into the heart of the church, yes? To undertake uh, a life of righteousness uh, for the sake of the world. Okay. What is our Lord Jesus Christ's understanding of these commandments? Jesus summed them up positively by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now you remember this, we, we say this every Sunday, don't we? Before the liturgy begins, why do we say that? What's that? Exactly. So, well, as Anglicans, we used to just recite. We used to just recite the Ten Commandments every Sunday, <laughs> and this is a kind of shortening of that. Um, but the reason is so that you remember why you're here. I mean, people walk into church for a lot of reasons. Um, and some of them conscious, some of them unconscious. But maybe it's because you, you don't want your friends to wonder where you were this morning. Maybe it's just that simple. Uh, maybe you're here to make your wife happy. Maybe you're here to make your daughters happy. Maybe, you know, it could be any number of things. Maybe you're here just because it's an old habit and it's too hard to break, and so why start today? <laughs> you see? But the liturgy recalls us to this, that no matter what your motivation, what it ought to be is that you come here to love God and to love your neighbor. Um, and Jesus' understanding of the commandments is, quite simply, uh, that, um, that opposed to the many ideas we can get about the law, which, is, which are many, right? We outlined them a bit this morning. One is, well, I keep the law so that God will be happy with me so that I don't have to go to the bad place when I die. Or I keep the law so that God doesn't hit the smite button on me and send me down the uh, cosmic chute into the never world, right? It's, it's this whole thing of ideas about this. 
But for the Christian, nothing but love will do. Um, that's it. Why can you not do this perfectly? Well, God made mankind to love him perfectly. Sin has corrupted our nature, leading me to resist him, to ignore his will, and to care more for myself than for my neighbors. Okay. God has made us to love him perfectly. Um, this is indeed one of the things that it means to be made in the image of God, isn't it? To, to be made to love him. Um, but here's the problem with the fall. <laughs> the problem with the fall is that, is that our nature has been corrupted. Um, our nature, as C.S. Lewis puts it, has become bent. Um, have you ever had a machine with a bent shaft or something like that? In a car or something? Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, have you ever had a computer with a virus? Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> it, it works a bit, right? Um, it's just super slow. Right? Uh, that, 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 um, that bent drive shaft on your 4x4, if it's bent out of shape, what happens? The back end of your vehicle, rumble, 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 rumble. It's horrible. Um, it doesn't work as it ought to. Um, it still is alive, right? Um, but it just doesn't work right. Um, and it makes it impossible to do anything perfectly. It leads us to resist God, sin does. Um, to ignore his will, to care more for myself than for my neighbors. When will you love God perfectly? I will only love God perfectly when he completes his work of grace in me at the end of the age. Okay. Um, perfect is a bit of a, an odd word in, well, it's not an odd word in, in Greek. It's actually a great word in Greek. Uh, it's a weird word to us. Um, the word in Greek is the telos. It's perfection. If you've studied philosophy at all, this should come up. Um, it's, 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 it's the highest possible purpose for a thing. Um, it's the good around which all of it is, all the thing itself is ordered. Um, uh, telos can often be translated as, as, as grown up. Uh, when it's grown up, this is what it's like. And, and for the Christian, and I think this, this is really important, um, it is only when this work of grace is completed at the end of the age that any of us will be truly perfected. Now, is this to say we cannot attain to, to perfection now? We should not try? We ought to just give up and say, well, eventually, you know, all this sanctification business will happen. But right now, who cares? It's not going to happen today. It's certainly not going to happen tomorrow. So why bother? No, no, no. Um, attaining to Christian perfection is absolutely of uh, the essence. And here's the question that, that entertains that. Why then do you learn God's law now? I learn God's law now so that having died to sin in Christ, I might love him as I ought, delight in his will as he heals my nature, and live for his glory. Love it. Having died to sin in Christ. Again, this is the language of Romans chapter 6, where, where Paul asks the question, you know, in a kind of rhetorical way, actually exactly rhetorical way, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? You know, if grace is good, why not have more of it? And we know that God gives more grace when we sin, so let's get more grace. He said, do you, do you not see what's wrong with that? And he uses this wonderful meganoito, like, may it never be. Um, 
And, and what he says is, how can we who died to sin continue to live in it any longer? He says, do you not know that as many of you were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? He says, you've died to Christ. This is, you've died with Christ. Um, this is, I mean, this is at the heart of Paul's understanding of the gospel. It's, it's not just that Jesus died for you. It's Jesus died for you and you died in him. Therefore, you're dead and made alive. There's a whole lot more past Jesus died for you. A whole lot more. Um, and here's the bit. <laughs> Having died to sin in Christ, I might love him as I ought. Um, you know, Paul speaks a great deal about crucifying uh, the passions. Um, about having been crucified with Christ. So there's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. To delight in his will as he heals my nature. Oh man, I love that. I love that line, that's great. Um, you know, the purpose of, Christ, of Christ's work in us um, is largely to heal our nature. It's a wonderful phrase from the scholastics um, that, that they lean on heavily. It's that Grace perfects nature. Um, and we live in a time when a lot of that has basically been lost, this understanding that grace perfects nature. And you, might have, you might have been a part of a church tradition that teaches grace in a very different way, so this is kind of new to you. Um, the idea of grace is that grace is sort of a, 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 a covering over of our sinful nature. It's window dressing, right? It's lipstick on a pig, okay? Uh, it's, as Luther reportedly said but didn't say, uh, it's snow covering the turd of our human existence, yes? Okay. Um, and, and the reality, he didn't say that. Um, <laughs> he thought it, but he didn't say it. <laughs> um, and the problem with that is, that is that that's not how grace is spoken of in the New Testament. I mean, time and again, grace is spoken of as having, actual, having an actual effect. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a gift, yes, of course it's a gift, but it's a gift that actually does something to us, um, that, that leads us to perfection, um, that, that heals our nature. Um, and that's, as you experience that, it, it leads you to, to delight in God's gift, doesn't it? I mean, look back 10 years ago. Think, think back how you were 10 years ago. Oh my goodness. Is it, is it painful a bit? You might say, well, you might be in your 20s and you say, man, I was a much better person back then. <laughs> but is that true? You've grown in certain ways. Um, God has given you grace in so many ways. Um, and, and many of you have been to confession with me and, and one of the things I often say to people, although if I haven't said it to you yet, just wait. Uh, is, you know, part of, part of life, especially in your 20s and 30s, is deciding what kind of old man you want to be, what kind of old woman you want to be. Um, and, and how are you going to get there? Well, you're not going to get there by trying harder, that's for sure. Um, you're going to get there because God is giving you his grace and you're going for it. Like you're asking him for his grace. Um, and, you know, the, the most saintly uh, people I've ever known in life it's, it's because of that. They, they consistently and constantly seek out God's grace for their lives. And, and they constantly apply it. Um, so that's, that's, that's my bit on, on grace and nature.
okay, and live for his glory. Um, and we learn, we learn God's law um, because there's something very corrupting about not, not knowing the law. Would you agree about that? Have you ever been pulled over in traffic and, and, and the officer says, are you aware that you were going 90 miles an hour in 70 mile an hour zone? And what you say is, well, I didn't know the speed limit was 70 miles an hour. As if it makes any difference, right? What the speed limit was. But you see, the problem is, is you just, it's, it's like a sort of automatic self-justification. Like, well, but I didn't know what the speed limit was. So what? Who cares? Um, uh, not knowing the law is, is no reason uh, to, to avoid it. So, um, and this has been something that uh, we, we've not been terribly good at, and I will admit to you that I've not been terribly good at it. Um, I remember having to, uh, having to examine uh, future ordinance, um, and I got fairly tired of these guys not knowing the Ten Commandments by heart. And at one point, the bishop said to me, so are you saying we shouldn't ordain this guy? And I said to him, Bishop, he shouldn't have even been confirmed um, because this is a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, how's he supposed to counsel someone when he doesn't know the Ten Commandments as, as just a baseline um, for giving good, solid advice, right? <laughs> like, he, he's, not, he's not internalizing the law at this point. Okay. How does God prepare you to begin living his law? Through faith, repentance, and baptism, God in grace washes away my sin, gives me his Holy Spirit, and makes me a member of Christ, a child of God, and an heir of the kingdom of heaven. Um, this catechism is written for adults, so you've got to keep that in mind. It's written for adult converts to Christianity. And what happens in the life of, of one who's been uh, converted as an adult is that they respond to God in faith, they decide to be baptized, they repent of their sins, uh, and they receive this new life in Christ. Now, in a sense, that's true of all of us, no matter when we were baptized. Uh, but this is an important thing, right? I mean, if, if the means of entering into the Old Covenant is what? How do you enter into the Old Covenant? Snip, snip. You get, you get circumcised, yeah? <laughs> and, and, and this circumcision obligates you to the law. This is, you know, if you want to read more about this, read Paul and Galatians, etc. You become obligated to the law. Um, but, as we know, unable to follow it. For the Christian, by, by being baptized, you become obligated to Christ. <laughs> yes? Um, and God prepares you uh, for this life as his heir uh, for, and, and makes you uh, a member of his, of his son, uh, a child of God, uh, and, and prepares you for this life, um, for this heavenly life. How does the church help you to live out God's law? The church exercises godly authority and discipline over me through the ministry of baptismal sponsors, clergy, and other teachers. Oh my, that's unpopular, isn't it? Uh, the church exercises godly authority and discipline over me. Um, and in various ways, yes. Um, I often tell godparents, you know, it's your job to go and evangelize your, your God's child when they, when they go astray. Get to that college campus <laughs> as soon as possible. Don't waste a day. Um, it's, it's part of my job as a, as a priest. It's actually most of my job as a priest. Um, to correct, uh, to, to bring people back in 
uh, who've gone astray. Um, now, having said that, um, put it to you this way. We in America are so democratized and so egalitarian that we simply do not even consider this to be a possibility. We say, no one's gonna direct my Christian life but me, man. That's it, I'm it. I'm the only one to do it. How's it working out for you? We'll have a Dr. Phil moment. How's it working for you? Is it working okay? Are you having a good time, enjoying it? No, yes, maybe, okay. Well, it doesn't work for me either. That's why I have a spiritual director and a bishop. If I didn't have a spiritual director and a bishop, I would be a disaster. Because I would have done things my own way over and over and over again and never had, um, so many things would be a mess right now. Um, so I want to say to you that, um, that godly authority is really important. Um, things like this. Uh, we, have, we have a couple down in College Station. Uh, they are thinking about the possibility of getting engaged. <laughs> this wonderful young couple. And you know what they did? They said, we want to meet with our priest. So they're meeting with Father Crossway on a monthly basis just to meet and pray and talk about whether or not they ought to get engaged. That's an exercise of godly authority. Isn't that wonderful? And you know what's going to happen? They are going to enter into marriage and they're going to have a great life and a great marriage. Why? because they're not leaning upon their 22-year-old consciences and sense of right. Um, now, if you're 22, I'm not bashing you, right? I'm just saying, you don't see it all. I'm 38, I don't see it all. I need somebody who's 70 to hit me over the head with stuff occasionally. To say, you're being an idiot. That's my bishop, okay? Your bishop as well. And, and this is just to say that we're all under authority. Um, and in fact, everybody's under authority but Jesus himself. That's how it works. Remember that wonderful scene um, with the centurion in Capernaum? Do you remember this? Right? And, and, uh, and the centurion sends for Jesus. And, uh, and this is, you know, his daughter's been dead for four days. This is, this is, this is a great story. And, and what, is, what is it the centurion says? He says, I am a man under authority. And I have others who are under, basically under my authority as well. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, do this, and he does it. And what is it that Jesus says about this? Do you remember this? He marvels at his faith. So to be under authority is actually an act of faith. Um, to, and to exercise authority well is an act of faith, too, of course. Um, I want to remind you of that. Um, it always falls, and I think this is really important as well, you know, some of you have experienced Christian godly, godly authority that's been, how should I say, uh, brusque and, and patently unhelpful and probably a little, um, a little frightening. The, the authority which, which Christians are to exercise is, is to be done in humility. Um, even, even by the authority considering others better than himself. Um, and that's, that's a big key. Okay, so let's move on. How does the Lord's Supper enable you to continue learning and living God's law? 
In the Lord's Supper or Holy Eucharist, I hear the law read, hear God's good news of forgiveness, recall my baptismal promises, have my faith renewed, and receive grace to follow Jesus in the ways of God's law and in the works of his commandments. I love this question. Right? Having, having said a bit about baptism, we now move to the Eucharist. And this is something I actually think is one of the most, uh, most terrible problems we have today in the church in America in particular, which is, as, as Peter Lightheart puts it, the, the problem is the continued marginalization of the Eucharist within evangelical life. Um, that is to say that the way that we receive grace is just plain not normal today. The way that scripture tells us to exercise a loving fellowship with Jesus is just not the norm, okay? Now I say this as, a, as, a, as trying to be as humble as I can about the critique, but the, the, the reality of it is that if you have Christian moral teaching without the grace to get there, what do you have every time? You have legalism. Um, so, you know, if you were to ask me, hey, Father, you know, why do we have the Eucharist every Sunday? I mean, it just seems like so much. And listen, I've, I've, uh, I've, I occasionally get to sit with my family and, and uh, you know, I've got six children and, and there are times when being back in the pew with them is just a joy and, and glorious and fun and lovely and there are times when it's just a bear. Like, be quiet, sit down, don't poke your brother, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and it's just like, why am I here? What are we doing today? But the reality of it is, I'm, you know, I have to get it through my head. I'm not here to sort of have this mountaintop glorious experience of having my brain enlightened and coming away a, a, a kind of a, a better guy, right? I'm here to meet Jesus. Um, and, and one of the things I learned in the Holy Land is that um, you don't meet Jesus only um, in the midst of total serenity and quiet. Sometimes you meet Jesus in the noisy streets. Sometimes you meet Jesus in the, um, amid great suffering and amid, amidst people being mean and nasty to you, right? And I say this because uh, what often happens in a parish church is people say, they say things like this. Well, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't sing any, any good hymns today. I didn't like the hymns today. And so I say, well, I didn't have a very good experience in church today. Well, it's probably true you didn't sing any good hymns, but you met Jesus. You know, if you received communion, you met, you met Jesus right there. Um, and very often, I think the enemy tries to haul us away from this understanding. So that we say, what, what good is just a little, a little wafer and a sip of wine? What good is that to me? Drawing our attention away from Jesus, yes. And that's one of the things I love about this painting is, do you see how Jesus' hand is pointed down like this? You see what's going on there? You see what he's pointing to? The composition is, is, the, is the key to understanding this painting. <laughs> like, look at the composition. It's the risen Christ showing us himself, right? It's that wonderful scene on the road to Emmaus. He was, you know, he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. It's wonderful. Um, all that's contained there. So as you see that host rise up, this is Jesus saying, here's my risen body right here. Um, 
Just a word about this. Um, we absolutely receive the presence of Christ into our bodies uh, for the purposes of sanctification. I've said that before. The surest way, and I think this is important, the surest way to make sure that that sanctification, that sanctifying grace really takes is through the life of prayer. Um, all too many people think, hey, I can just sort of show up, receive communion, go about my merry way, and it'll all be good. And you know what? You received grace. Wonderful. Um, but what the saints tell us about the, about the grace of the Eucharist is that, that that grace is in many ways activated by the life of prayer. Um, to be in communion with Jesus, to be in close communion with Jesus, and then to sort of like not say much to him for the rest of the week. Um, is, is, well, it's a disaster, isn't it? Um, it's like having a friend that you see once a year and then you never talk to each other the rest of the year. Um, it's sort of like, well, you know, good to see you this year. <laughs> I'm sure we'll see you next year. <laughs> and what kind of friendship is that? Um, so I want to encourage you to that, 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 that daily prayer is of the essence. One more practice that I want to keep you mindful of. Um, serious, unrepentant sin should keep you from the Eucharist and drive you to confession. Okay? I want to make that, make that very clear. But most of our sin is just sort of like, just little things, right, that pile up. Um, and so that's, that's the reason we have this kind of public confession every time we do this. Um, what I want to encourage you to is this. I want to encourage you to be honest about who you are as you approach communion today. Uh, to come to the table cognizant of who you are, cognizant of, of your failings over this past week or even the past month, um, and bring them to Jesus to be healed. Um, this is often one of the, one of the biggest struggles is we try to put on a persona when we're in church. Do you ever do this? <laughs> who I was at work on Friday is not who I am today. <laughs> and I'm not bringing him with me to church. Well, try it. Mm -hmm. Try it. Um, try to confess that. Um, try to bring that guy with you um, up to receive. Um, because here's the thing. There is so much grace in the Eucharist. So much grace. Um, grace that will heal you, grace that will restore you, grace that will drive you to holiness. Um, and so I want to encourage you to that today. All right, that's all for this week. Next week we'll start up with the first and second commandments, and we might even try to get a third one in, but I'm, I'm gathering we'll only get two commandments out. Uh, so see you here next week. Um, by the way, the plan is to continue catechesis straight up uh, to the end of June. Um, which means that somebody's going to, I think it's going to be Father Canary. <laughs> i got to ask you about this. Sorry I'm doing it publicly. Doing it so you can't say no. Huh. <laughs> uh, I'll be in Jerusalem the last two Sundays of June, and so somebody I think is going to have to take it over. Uh, but we will be on a hiatus uh, for all of July and the first two Sundays of August before we start back up. If you join catechesis midstream, I also want to encourage you to start again in the fall. Um, and by fall, I mean August 19th when it's blazing hot. But, but that's the idea, is um, 
you know, start it back up again. The, the, the basic thing that I'm after with, with catechesis is to put people through a whole year, and by that I mean end of August till the end of June uh, in catechesis. Um, if some of you are going to be going away as your students, um, Father Matthew's been faithfully recording these, and so you'll get all that content um, on those Sundays uh, that you miss. And so those can be, uh, will be able to be uploaded, will be able to be downloaded from the podcast. Does anyone know how to get to our podcast? Okay. If you have an iPhone, whatever, I don't know Android stuff, but, but basically search for Christchurch Waco podcast and you'll get to it. And you can listen to it on SoundCloud or iTunes or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. So um, that's the key. All right. We have sermons and pod- catechesis and everything on there. All right. Thank you all.